Will you please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4? Let us open our Bibles, our hearts, our eyes. Philippians chapter 4. And if you can, I'd like to stand. There is no command in the Bible that you should stand, but there is a pattern that we see, for example, in Nehemiah, when they're going to read from the Torah, the the instruction that the whole assembly raises. And there is the aspect, if you go to a court case, as soon as the judge steps into the room, what do you hear? Yes. So, it's a sign of respect and reverence. And here we have the judge of all judges and the Lord of all lords. And Proverbs talks about the younger raising in the presence of the elderly ones also. So, it's a sign of reverence as God is speaking to us and revealing Himself to all of us. Let's read starting verse 1. 1 through 7. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also through companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow soldiers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Please be seated. Let us pray. Yes, Lord, that, wo- that word above all, all earthly powers. Help this word to be alive, effective in our assembly this morning. Speak to us. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, so that we may behold beautiful, beautiful, wonderful Things out of your instruction. As Jeff prayed, we, we need your help. Apart from you, we can do nothing. I cannot preach properly. The congregation cannot listen properly. So we need your help. And you promise to help us. Thank you for this wonderful church. Thank for all these brothers and sisters. Thank for their love towards you. Thank for their support for this church. Thank for the privilege of standing here every Sunday and preaching your word to this flock whom you bought with your precious blood. Help us to rejoice in you. Help us to be gentle so that your name may be magnified. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We were just singing, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark. Now think about the bulwark. A bulwark is a protection. Ancient cities would fortify themselves, and armies would fortify themselves with a bulwark. 
to protect themselves and, and how we need protection. Remember, we saw in Philippians chapter 3, I believe, verse 18, we have enemies. Enemies. Enemies of the cross. Adversaries. Paul says in Ephesians, we, we, the church, do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, over this present darkness. We wrestle against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we must keep in mind that this, these two things, the church is triumphant and the church is militant. The church is triumphant and the church is militant. We don't divorce the two. The church is triumphant in Christ because Christ has won the war. But we still are militant because we keep fighting. Remember the, the, the analogy of V-Day and D-Day with the war, the world war. You had the V-Day, D-Day, and the same with the church. We have, we know that we have the final victory is ours in Christ. But until the consummation of that day, we keep fighting. We keep facing the enemy. Luther said in his wonderful hymn, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. The church needs a bulwark. God himself, his means of grace to protect his precious army, his battalion. And we know that Satan is indeed angry and ferocious. In Revelation chapter 12, we hear the, the ancient serpent, the old serpent, our ancient enemy, Satan, is angry, is very angry, full of wrath. Do you know why? John tells us. Because he knows that his, his time is short. He knows that his time is short. So therefore, he's very aggressive towards the church. And he loves, he loves, as Paul says in Ephesians 6, to throw flaming arrows towards the church. His flaming darts against the church. And his favorite arrows are depression, joyless, misery, self-centeredness, gloom, anxiety, despair, heavy-heartedness, quarreling, complaining, murmuring. Those are his most favorite weapons. And just look at the society around us. And it's marked by joyless. I think a few weeks ago we had Mother's Day and I believe the New York Times posted an article. And the lady who published the article there, she's not conservative at all. And she, she, she published an article saying how happy she was of being a mother in her estimate in a young age. She was 25 when she became a mother. And... And so she's just saying how, and you read the article, there are a lot of things that make no sense for us, but okay, she's just saying how she doesn't regret at all becoming a mom at an early age and being married. And guess what? An avalanche of replies criticizing her and people publicly saying, oh, I wish more mothers would stand up and say how miserable it is to be a mom. It's a joyless society. 
And if anybody has any joy, they're going to come against you because who are you to be joyful? And the Lord, in His gracious providence, He has provided a bulwark, a protective wall that enables the church to stand firm thus in the Lord. And the most beautiful thing about the, the bulwark, this wall that the Lord provides for His church, is that it is a defensive weapon and it's an offensive weapon at the same time. And Paul shows us here in Philippians chapter 4 that this bulwark, this, this protection for the church is rejoicing in the Lord, being gentle to all, being prayerful. Hmm. And then the peace of God will guard us. And not only guard us, but also becomes offensive. It conquers people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So, as we walk this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be beholding this bulwark for the church, this protective wall that the Lord has given us to protect and to advance the kingdom at the same time. So, as, as we come to this part of Philippians, let me just give an introduction today so I don't need to do next Lord's Day and to help you see what's taking place here. And basically, in chapter 4, verse 1, you have one major imperative, one major command. Stand firm, thus in the Lord. Remember, a military word for soldiers under pressure, not running away, but standing firm, shoulder to shoulder. And now, in these next verses, Paul is explaining how they are to stand firm, thus in the Lord. So, the next verses, from verse 2 through verse 9, that's the embodiment. He's just fleshing out how the church is to stand firm, thus in the Lord. And you see, it's a bunch of very directive imperatives. Rejoice in the Lord. Be gentle. Do not be anxious. Be prayerful. And these imperatives are Paul's way of saying, here is the fronel, here is the, the, the pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting that you must have in the Lord. And if you look at these verses, you see that joy, gentleness, no anxiety, prayerfulness, peace, they all walk, they all walk together. Okay? You cannot divorce one. You cannot say, oh, I want the peace of the Lord without rejoicing the Lord, without gentleness, without prayerfulness. And you cannot be a person of prayer and be joyless and not be gentle. So they all walk together here. One more observation as we look at these verses here is, in my view, the, the center statement is the Lord is near. In some versions you have the Lord is at hand. And I think that's the key to understand why Paul is demanding these things. It's because of the presence of the Lord Jesus in the church. The Lord Jesus is present in His church. Therefore, we can rejoice in Him always. We can be gentle to all. We don't need to be anxious about anything. We can present our prayers to the Lord. And then the peace of God in Christ Jesus will guard us. And one more observation here is how extensive and comprehensive is the gospel. The gospel is not something private for a very private area of your life. No, the, the gospel covers every area of your life and all the members of the church. Look at that. All 
all the time. Nothing, nothing, everything, all. Do you see how extensive it is, how comprehensive it is? Nothing, all things, all the time, everyone. And that implies that all the areas of our lives must be conquered and dominated by the gospel. And also shows us how Paul is presenting these commands to every church in every time. So he doesn't say just rejoice in the Lord when you're going through a hard time. No, rejoice in the Lord always. He doesn't say be gentle to those who are gentle towards you. Be gentle to, to all. So this is so we can apply this in China, in North Korea, in Canada, in Argentina, in India. That's the gospel. So, here's the outline of this morning and then next Lord's Day, the Lord willing. So, we're going to see as how to stand firm in the Lord by being a joyful church, by being a gentle church, verse 5, by being a prayerful church, and then consequently by being a peaceful church. That's, I believe, what Paul is teaching us here. So, let's see how to stand firm in the Lord by being a joyful church. And you see in verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And I highly recommend you, if you want to be refreshed, go back to chapter 3, verse 1. And I had a whole sermon on the theology of joy. And I, I don't know if you remember, but I trace back from beginning to end and why we can always rejoice in the Lord. So, chapter 3, verse 1. And joy is a very prominent theme in Philippians. Right? A lot of times when you're learning about the books of the Bible and you need to remember the titles or what the book is about, what is Philippians about? Joy, rejoice in the Lord. So that's a very important theme that binds this whole letter together. I was counting yesterday, there are more than 12 references to the, the, the Greek root har where you have joy or rejoice frequently being used by Paul here. But it's amazing that you see that joy here, rejoicing the Lord, has nothing to do with a big smile on your face and just being happy. It's actually in the context of war. Rejoicing the Lord in a letter that's all about war. And that reminds us how in ancient times, armies would rejoice. They would be called to rejoice even, even before the final result of the battle. So, for example, if you read the Gallic Wars, that's a, a Roman document with history of their wars, the Gallic Wars. It talks about Caesar and how Caesar would encourage the troops to rejoice even though they were outnumbered. The victory is ours. Caesar is with you. Rejoice. And they would rejoice. And that's what we see taking place throughout the Scriptures. We see the same thing. God's people are called to rejoice even before the final result of the battle. Why? Because the battle is ours in the Lord. So, for example, Psalm, Psalm 27 and you can turn there, Psalm 27. 
It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Salvation is, is a military word. Being rescued. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And now he describes the, the adversary surrounding him. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. And then he goes on and he talks about rejoicing in the Lord. So, for example, verse 6, he talks about the, the enemy surrounding him. And he says, now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies around me. And I will, look at the future, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. So we can rejoice in the Lord even when we are outnumbered and it seems like we are going to lose this battle. But we will not because the Lord is with us. But that's what Paul is doing here. Rejoice. Rejoice. I know that there is suffering, persecution coming towards this church. But rejoice. The victory is ours in the Lord. Remember that Paul, earlier in this letter, he said, For I am certain that he who began the good ergon, the good battle in you, will bring to completion. And as we are thinking about the context of the letter, here is Paul calling the church to rejoice. And look at verse 3. What did he just finish saying in verse 3? Where are their names? In the book of life. Jesus did the same thing. As soon as He talks about the book of life, He calls His disciples to rejoice. So, for example, in Luke chapter 10, look at Paul following, following the example of Jesus. Behold, Jesus says, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that these spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven, in the book of victory. So, Paul is just imitating Jesus. He just talked about their names being written in the book of victory. And now he calls them to rejoice. I also think about the context, and we are having a, a civil war between two members in the church. And what is the best remedy for conflict in the church? But examining myself and making sure that I'm rejoicing in the Lord, that I'm finding all my delight in the Lord. Spurgeon said, People who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, they are not apt either to give offense or to take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles which naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Joy in the Lord is the healing for all discord. Joy in the Lord then drives away the discords of earth. And when we rejoice in the Lord, when our inward delight is in the Lord, we are beholding the lovableness of God 
and not emphasizing the unlovableness of our brothers and sisters. That's what takes place. When I'm rejoicing the Lord, I'm all, I'm targeting all at the lovableness of my Lord and Savior and gives very little room for me to be targeting the unlovableness of my brothers and sisters. So, notice also the sphere where we are supposed to be rejoicing. It's in the Lord. That's why there is suffering, there is persecution, there is the threat of false teachers, there is conflict among church members. And Paul is saying, rejoice. But how can you say rejoice? Rejoice in the Lord. And because you are in the Lord, you can rejoice and you can rejoice always. And that's something very important for us to think about. Rejoicing in the Lord is not a, a, a momentary, spontaneous outburst of feeling. It's actually a lifestyle. It's a pattern of thinking, acting, and feeling in the Lord. To rejoice in the Lord is the fronel, it's the mindset that we have in Christ Jesus. Stephen Fowle, in his commentary, he says, Joy is not so much a spontaneous emotion as a response. Listen to this, that's, that's beautifully written. As a response formed in those who can read the economy of God's activity in particular ways, and are able to act in conformity with the unfolding story. For some of you, that's way beyond your grasp, and that's fine. I hope you read again, and you read again, because it's so powerful. He says, joy is the appropriate response when one rightly perceives the unfolding of God's drama. Drama, the story of God's redemption, even in the midst of suffering and opposition. Rejoicing the Lord always is the fruit of a fronel, a mindset that understands where you are in the history, in the drama of salvation. And where are you in the drama of salvation? Where are you? In Christ. I'm in Christ Jesus. You see, Israel, under the Old Covenant, could not rejoice all the time because God's presence was in Zion, in the temple. Now we are in Christ. His Spirit is dwelling with us in the church. And it doesn't matter what takes place, we can rejoice always. Do you remember the psalmist? He says, how can we sing? Our captors ask us to sing. How can we sing songs of joy in Babylon? There is no joy. So we need to understand that. That's why Paul says, and again, again I will say, rejoice. Because Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he knows that as soon as he says, rejoice always, what's going to happen? That monster is going to manifest. But you don't know. You don't know what I'm going through. You have no idea about my sufferings. Right? Every time you're going to help someone, that person always has something so dramatic that nobody can help them. 
Nobody. Nobody understands what I'm going through. How can you tell me to rejoice always? So he knows, and then he says, and I will say again, I know you're going to raise your, your questions and your issues and your problems, and lovingly I'm going to tell you, rejoice. Rejoice. And he used the future tense. I will keep repeating this beautiful and annoying exhortation. Rejoice. Rejoice. So, whatever understanding you have of joy in Christ, whatever understanding you have of rejoicing in the Lord, you've got to remember that there must be space there for momentary sorrows, momentary pain, momentary tears. Paul just told us that he's writing with tears, weeping. He talks about having sorrows. But remember, the sorrow may last for the night. It's momentary. We have a joy as a, this foundation. The problem is, when you turn upside down, then becomes an issue. So, our understanding of joy must be that joy is this mindset, this foundation that can, that can go through and experience sorrow and suffering and pain and tears. But those momentary things do not become the main thing. So Jesus had sorrow as He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. But His life is marked by joy. Paul has sorrows. But His life is marked by joy. And the same with the church. We have sorrows. We have momentary times of pain and suffering and affliction and tears. But what holds us is this pronel that we have in Christ Jesus. So, that's very important for us to keep in mind. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say rejoice. So sometimes I hear people saying, Oh, as soon as I get a job, the job that I really want, or as soon as I get married, then I'll be able to rejoice in the Lord fully. As soon as I have a baby, then I'll be able to rejoice in the Lord. No. You start now. Today is the day. Rejoice in the Lord always. Because if you're waiting for something, then you're not rejoicing the Lord. You're rejoicing the idol. Or sometimes people create things in their minds in order for them to, to rejoice in the Lord. So, for example, that's something that happens. You have a father and a mother, and the son becomes a rebel, and he runs away from the home, slandering the household. And sometimes... The parents, in order to rejoice in the Lord, they, they have to come up with this unbiblical idea. The Lord will bring him back. I'm sure that the Lord will bring him back. I'm sure that the Lord will bring him back. And that's why I can rejoice in the Lord. What if the Lord doesn't bring him back? Or a spouse walks away from the marriage. And the other spouses, I rejoice in the Lord because I know that He will come back. What is that? That's not rejoicing the Lord. 
couple loses a baby and they're rejoicing the Lord because they're sure that the baby is in heaven. We have clear evidence from the Scripture that the baby is there. Can you rejoice in the Lord if the baby is not in heaven? Can you rejoice in the Lord if your spouse does not return home and actually marries another one and never looks at you and your children anymore? Can you rejoice in the Lord? If the child that ran away, rebellious, died and went to hell, can we rejoice in the Lord and say, the Lord is my salvation? So we need to be careful. To rejoice in the Lord is to have an inward, inward delight in the Lord that no matter how painful, how uncertain, or how happy, how awesome, or how awful the things are, the Lord is in me and the Lord is for me. That's rejoicing the Lord. The Lord is in me and the Lord is for me. Well, this Spurgeon also who said, What a gracious God we serve, who makes delight to be a duty. What a wonderful God. He commands you to delight as a duty. What God is like that. So, first you think, there is no beauty, no nothing good in a cranky, crabby, joyless, gloomy church and Christians. That's not pleasant at all. It's actually a contradiction. How can you proclaim the good news of great joy? Remember the angels? The good news of great joy. And yet you're always cranky. You're marked by being a grumpy person. Joyless. Can you imagine every time we assemble here as a church, it's always to criticize what's going on outside. It's always to, to, to be bitter at the government and the, the situations. that are. Can you imagine? That's a contradiction to the gospel. And the church has Christ, as we see in verse 5. The Lord is near. Therefore, the church must be a beacon of joy into this joyless world. Well, let me remind you that's a sin. It's a sin for us not to rejoice in the Lord always. Listen to this. It's a sin for us not to rejoice in the Lord always. It's as much as a sin as adultery. Fornication, murder, I'm not saying it has the same degree, but it's sin. Because the Lord is commanding us, therefore, if we are not rejoicing the Lord, what are we doing? Sinning. Sinning. And rejoicing the Lord is a, is a key mark of the kingdom of God. Our God is a God of joy. In His presence there is fullness of joy. Paul says, for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of what? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Always! When I lose my job, when I lose my job, when I get slandered, False accusations. When my spouse commits adultery. 
Am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord? Am I supposed to rejoice in the Lord? Yes! Not rejoice in the adultery. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Always. Fascinating. You go and study this Greek word. Pantote. Do you know what that means? Always. Always. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. And here's a man. Look at, think about Paul. Here's a man. He's not in a hammock in, in, in Dubai enjoying a, a beautiful beach and, and just relaxing. Actually, here's a man in prison. Oh, you just don't know about my, my psychological sufferings that I had. How about this man? Talk about psychological affliction. This guy was persecuting the church. Forsaken by all. Beaten with rods, stoned almost to death. Shipwreck. Has anybody here been a shipwreck in the first century? Stoned to death. They drag his body out of town because they think he's dead. Here he's in a prison. He needs people to bring him food. So he's not a man who has no idea about affliction and pain and telling others to rejoice always. Here's a man accustomed to suffering and pain. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And they know, they know by experience, they know how Paul is. Because remember when he planted that church, he's in prison. His body full of open wounds. And him and Silas are doing what? Rejoicing in the Lord, even with pain. So many Christians were martyred, and as they were being martyred, they showed the joy of the Lord in their death. I was thinking, as I was preparing this sermon, about one English reformer, John Bradford. He was burning at Smithfield under Queen Mary's reign, and uh, in his farewell letter, Bradford, he writes to his companion who was going to die with him. Therefore, my dearly beloved, can you see Paul here? Rejoice, rejoice, and give thanks with me and for me that ever God did vouchsafe, granted so great a benefit to our country as to choose the most unworthy, and I mean myself, to be one in whom it would please him to suffer any kind of affliction. Much more this violent kind of death is going to be burned alive, which I perceive is prepared for me with you for his sake. All glory and praise be given unto God our Father for this exceeding great mercy towards me. Through Jesus Christ. Amen. And they tell us, they tell us that as they were being burned alive, and he sees his brother in Christ in anguish, he looks at him and he says, Be of good comfort, brother. Tonight, this very night, we shall have a joyful, a merry supper with the Lamb. Those are his last words. May the Lord help us to be like that. May we learn to rejoice in the good times. 
May we learn to, may we train ourselves. Remember a pattern of thinking, feeling, and acting. Let us train ourselves now while it's good. We have green pastures right now. Let us train ourselves now. Make sure that every good gift that you have, every good meal you're eating, every good blessing you're enjoying, you're, you are rejoicing, not in that thing, that person, but in the Lord Himself. And think to yourself, if the Lord removed this from me right now, if the Lord removed my home, would I be rejoicing, singing praises to Him right now? We must learn to rejoice always under the flames of suffering and when upon the green pastures. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. What a delightful duty we have to rejoice together as a church. Be a church marked by joy, marked by rejoicing. And the next one, there is one more. He tells us how to stand firm. We are to stand firm by being a gentle church, being a gentle church, and, and being joyful in the Lord, and being gentle walk hand in hand. Amen? I don't know any person who is joyful in the Lord and is cranky at the same time. There is no way for you to rejoice in the Lord and yet be rude, not be gentle. They walk together. And it's as we have this inward delight, it becomes an external manifestation in the gentleness, how we treat others and how we suffer. So, for example, DSV has let your reasonableness be known to all. And there is a reason why they translate as reasonable. But I think gentle is a better translation. The NEAS has let your gentle spirit, and you see the italics, and every time the NEASB has italics, it's because it's not in the original text, so they're adding there to help you understand. Uh, other translations have let your gentleness, the NIV, or let your graciousness. And it's interesting, the word, the Greek word here used by Paul, Epikes, one Greek dictionary says, the word signifies a humble, patient, steadfastness which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, and maltreatment without hatred and malice, trusting God in spite of all. That's the main idea behind this word. That's why I think gentle is a good translation. And we, we can see how this word is used you can see the meaning of this word by how Paul uses in his letters. So, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he used the same word as he's giving the qualifications for elders, for church, for church leaders, pastors. He says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent. And look at the contrast. Not violent, but what? but gentle. So, you see, the gentle stands between violent and quarrelsome. It's the opposite of being quarrelsome or being violent. The same with Titus chapter 3, reminds them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak, to speak evil of no one. And look at the contrast here. To avoid quarreling, 
and instead to be gentle, showing courtesy towards all. 1 Peter 2.18 Servants, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and what? Gentle ones, but to the unjust. So the main idea behind this word, let your gentleness be known to all, is the idea of you're suffering, you're being maltreated, and yet you respond with kindness, with gentleness. It refers to the calm and kind disposition that enables a person to offer a non-violent, even generous response to others' aggressions. It's the opposite of being argumentative, quarrelsome, violent. And the church elders, the church leaders, are supposed to be an example to the whole body. That's why they must be the first ones to be gentle. Under pressure to not be quarrelsome, to be violent. This word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament. If you get the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's often, it's primarily used of God. And when God is showing gentleness and kindness to His people. So F.F. Bruce, he says, Christians who have been beneficiaries of God's gentleness should show the same quality in their dealings with others. Because we have received gentleness from God, we must be gentle towards others. Look, he says, gentleness to all. Let me go back here. Yeah, right there. Gentleness to all. Let your gentleness be known, be manifested to a, to a few people. To all. <laughs> it's easy to be gentle to those who are gentle towards you. Right? How about be gentle, be kind, be self-controlled towards those who hurt you, who offend you, who persecute you. Gentleness to all. Inside and outside the church, we must be marked by a PAK, calm, self-control, gentle disposition that reflects our union with Jesus. That's how the church must be marked. You can see a picture, we can see a picture of this when Peter describes Jesus. So in 1 Peter 2, here is a picture of gentleness. You're going to see what it looks like Peter gives us. He says, For what credit it is if when you sin and you suffer for it and you are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. What is my calling in life? Here is right here. To suffer with gentleness. For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continuing trusting Himself to Him who judged justly. Do we proclaim the gospel with boldness, with zeal, with passion? Yes, but all that zeal, all that passion, all that boldness, but, but it has to be clothed with garments of gentleness. 
kindness. Have you seen people preaching the gospel? And they're speaking truth. Declaring the gospel to lost people. But yet you see no gentleness. No kindness. That's not how the church must look like. It must be gentle, self-control, a kind disposition. Under trial. That's very important. When trials come, we reveal the gentleness of Christ in us. Now let me remind you that Paul is talking to the whole church. And you individuals, as Christians, how you behave always, always reflects upon the one whom you bear His name, Christ Jesus. So don't ever think that you are doing that, but, but that's just me. That's just me. No. You are in union with Christ and you belong to a church. So all our actions will resemble Christ Jesus and the church we are part from. So, be careful. Be careful. In your social media. What you're posting. How you're replying to people. At the grocery store. In traffic when you're driving. Because you are, you are reflecting Christ and His body. Can you imagine? You see a post on your social media and you reply, Ah, that's sick and blah. Just this harsh word. Whoa. And then the next post, somebody asks you, What church are you from? What church do you go to? Do you see how that is going to reflect on us? Good, because I don't want to go to that church. You're at the grocery store, upset with what they're requesting, requiring from you. Suddenly you send a sharp, murderous reply and word. How are you going to tell somebody who just heard that about Christ and the gentleness of Christ and the kindness of Christ? Invite the person to church. (laughs) Before entering into an argument, replying with sharp, harsh words, ask yourself, am I showing gentleness and kindness to everyone? Is everyone perceiving gentleness and kindness here? How amazing that would be if before... Anything. Have an argument between David and Dan. And before they're getting rad and angry, they ask themselves, am I rejoicing the Lord? Am I being gentle to all? Somebody walks by, somebody could read my mind. Can they see the gentleness of Christ here? The kindness of Christ And then Paul says, the Lord is near. 
the Lord is near. And for me, that's the, the key to understand His commands. And this, this word, this, exp- this expression, the Lord is near, could be referred to the coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord is near, or could refer to the presence of the Lord near to His people. And both are work together. He's coming back because He came. He's coming back because His Spirit is within us. But I take here as Paul explaining to the church why we can behave like that. Because Christ is so near to us. So near to us that He's in us through His Spirit and we are in Him through union in Christ. He's so close to us to guide, to instruct, to encourage, to infuse with strength, to assist, to transform to empower His people. And that's why the church must and has the ability to rejoice always and to be gentle towards all. I was thinking this morning, thinking about what's taking place in Canada, just above us here. If people were to come, if the officials were to come to our church today, and say, done, done with the service, done with the service here, arresting some of us, would we show gentleness? Would we show ourselves to be a church that is rejoicing in the Lord? Or would we be barking, yelling, screaming at them like dogs? If persecution comes, people come to attack us, what would be our reaction as a church? Gentleness, joy. God of here. We need to think about these things. The Lord Jesus is with us. He's with His church. Empowering us. Transforming us. To rejoice in Him always and to be gentle. Jesus is the embodiment of joy and gentleness. And His presence within us empowers us to do that. And you think about sin, and I'll finish here, but sin, when sin took place with Adam and Eve, the first thing that the Lord did was to bring an exile departure from His presence. No longer in the presence of God. The Garden of Eden is protected. Adam and Eve go to the east far. And that's what we see happening in Genesis. People going farther and farther from the presence of God. In the presence of God, there is joy. There is gentleness. Away from the presence of God, there is darkness, joyless, gloom, violence. And that's our society. You look at our society and you see people in exile from the presence of God. They don't know God. They're not in the presence of the Lord. Because in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. There is fullness of gentleness. There is fullness of peace. So you look at society and they must be like that. Because they are not in the presence of the Lord, but not the church. 
we are constantly in the presence of God. Therefore, we must be a beacon of gentleness and joy in this dark, joyless, violent world. The Lord's face is no longer hidden from us like it is to people outside Christ. Through His death, remember what happens? The curtain is torn apart and now we can come into His presence and behold His smiling face. May His face shine upon you and give you peace and joy and gentleness and kindness. We have no excuse to be like the world. We have everything to be the opposite of the world. So I pray that we as a church would join our voices with Habakkuk and sing. Remember the last part of Habakkuk. It's all about destruction. The Lord is coming to judge. The Babylonians are coming. Famine. Death, sword, pestilence. Look at Habakkuk says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. No money, no food, no security, nothing. Nothing. And what does he say? Yet I will, look at the future, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will. Wait, wait a second. How do you know that you will? That's future. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of what? My salvation. It's certainty. The victory is certain. Nothing, nothing can separate me from the love of my God. Therefore, I will rejoice and be gentle. Father, help us. Help us. Those are the most glorious duties that you have given us. To be joyful always, to rejoice in you always, and to be gentle towards all. And the reason is, is because you are near to us. Once we were alienated, once we were separated, but now because of Jesus, we have been dragged near to you. Thank you for bringing us into your presence where there is fullness of joy and in a joyless, gloomy, dark, violent world we can rejoice. We come to this place and rejoice because your presence is here. Help us. Help us to be a church that is always mindful of your presence within us and our presence in the Holy of Holies because of the work of Christ. And there is fullness of joy. Thank You for giving us Your Holy Spirit 
to change us, to dwell within us. So help us to be a church that's joyful always and gentle to all. May this be a bulwark for this congregation. In Jesus' name, Amen.